Well, good evening. It is so good to be with you, and it's good to have you here with us. You are visiting. Thank you for coming, you know, taking this time to spend together with us in the worship of God and a study of His Word. I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles back to the book of Acts, if you will. In a moment, we'll be reading again from Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. God, the creator, as we have already noted in the 14th chapter of Acts, is a God that did not leave himself without witness. And what, do we, what does that mean by that? Well, simply put, what that means is that all around us, the universe in its entirety is a testimony. It is a witness of the one who possesses immeasurable power and who has designed and ordered everything around us. And so our search for the reality of God is a process. It is a process of building a case. A case for God, a case that God is. And even though we cannot see him with our physical eyes, we can see evidences around us that he is true, that he is real, and that he is alive. Now, scientific methodology cannot prove God. Scientific methodology cannot disprove God either. For the existence of God is not something that you can repeat. It is not possible to place God into a test tube in a sense. And so you think about God's existence, you think about creation. It doesn't fall with under scientific methodology. That is, it is not repeatable demonstrations through testing and observation. The evidence for God is very much like history. Events in history by their nature, the very nature of history itself cannot be repeated. Now, we might make the same mistakes from history, but you don't repeat history in its technical sense. That is why scientific methods cannot prove Galileo. Scientific methods cannot prove Thomas Edison. That fall falls under history and the imprints that those men have left behind them. And so, therefore, events or people which cannot be repeated you know, do not disprove their reality, nor does it prove their reality. But at the same time, you know, those events or those people's existence can still be proven to be real by other methods. Science is helpful, though. It is very helpful with things that can be examined. It is very helpful with things that can be measured. But God, God is immeasurable. You can't put God and lay him out beside a tape measure. 
You can't measure God. And the origin of this universe, and it's amazing in the universe that we exist in, it, likewise, it too cannot be measured fully, and it cannot be repeated by mankind. Man cannot repeat the origin of this universe. You know, it's like finding those artifacts, the artifacts of history, of archaeology that give us insight into mankind's past. Likewise, God has definitely left us, in a sense, some artifacts. He has left his imprint. He has left, in a sense, his footsteps behind him so that we can know with confidence and reason, we can know that God is the originator and God is the maker. It is for that reason I had you turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read verses 24 through 28, where the apostle Paul in addressing an audience in the very philosophical city of Athens, ancient Athens, and he presents to them a defense for the God that they could not see, and it's the same God that we cannot see, and yet he uses the imprint, the handiwork of God, to say this God is real. And so he reminds them in verse 24, the 17th chapter of Acts, As he preaches to this audience, he says, The God who made the world, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell, does not live in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath in all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. The Lord of heaven and earth has determined the boundaries of man's habitation. It is that one point I want for us to, for a moment this evening, to ponder and to consider as we look at the imprint of God's handiwork and, and see God by faith through the creation and the habitation that we live in. We all know that a watch has a watchmaker and a clock has a clockmaker and our universe likewise has a maker. There's a famous clock that was designed by a man by the name of Jen Olson. It is the Olson astronomical clock that is displayed in the Copenhagen City Hall in Denmark. Now, Jen Olson was a locksmith that learned the trade of clockmaking. Now, he died in 1945, and he actually died before the completion of this clock. 
It is according to his design with the help of others. But it took them 12 years to build this clock. And what we have here displayed on the PowerPoint, you have the front and the back display of this clock as it's displayed in a glass case. And so you can kind of walk all around it and see this clock at work. It began in, they began making it, building it in 1943. And you kind of know what's going on at that time in the world. That's when they began this clock. And it was finished in 1955. It consists of 12 works. It consists of 12 works. That's how big this clock is. It has 12 works. And it has 15,448 parts. Now, in it, there's going to be some pretty minuscule parts, but there are over 15,000 parts to this astronomical clock that is displayed in Copenhagen, Denmark. It displays include such things as lunar and solar eclipses, It also displays positions of stellar bodies, as well as a perpetual calendar and various times in the world. The fastest gear on this clock, it it revolves every 10 seconds. So the fastest gear has a revolution of 10 seconds. The slowest gear, the slowest gear on this clock will complete its revolution after 25,753 years. That's how slow that gear is moving. If the world is still here. With that in mind, I want to read now Psalm 19. Psalm 19, so we go back to a Psalm of David. And we contemplate a well-known passage that brings to mind the power of God in the poetry of these words. In Psalm 19, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Psalm 19, 1 through 6. And David, by the Holy Spirit, writes, The heavens, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world in them He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and a circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is a familiar passage to all of us as Bible students and as men and women of faith who meditate on the Psalms. But when you think about the clock that Olson built, 
and all the displays that is on that clock, as well as, for example, it shows solar time. It shows the sunrise and the sunset of Central Europe. It has astronomical emotions as well as appearance of stars in the sky. All of that uh, is on this astronomical clock designed by Jen Olson. We live, you and I live in a universe that is greater than Olson's clock. The workings of our solar system are greater than the precision of Olson's clock. For Olson's clock is based upon movements and time measurements that God himself established. Why is it we can have devices that measure time? Why is that the case? Why can you have a time mechanism in your phone or on the wall in your kitchen or on your stove? Why can we have these various displays of measurement time? Why is it you and I, or at least others perhaps, maybe not us, but anyway, uh, why is it that we can calculate the time, the exact time of sunrise and sunset every day at any location across this globe. Why is it that the case? It's not because of Olson's clock. That's not why. It is because we live in a universe, we live in a solar solar system that has been ordered by God. It is our universe, it is our solar system by which we base time. It It is how we measure time. We live within the boundaries and the framework of time. Time that God, our creator, established. As you recall in Acts 17, when Paul is preaching to those Athenians, he spoke of the boundaries of man's habitation. And that habitation falls in the boundary of time. And so in a sense, In a very figurative sense, in a sense, you and I live inside a clock. And the greatest clockmaker is not Jen Olson. It is God. God is the greatest clockmaker. And it is this universe's existence It is the the existence of our universe that requires an effective cause. Every watch has a watchmaker. Every clock has a clockmaker. And our universe has a maker. It requires that it has an effective cause. What brought it into existence? Why is it we are so ordered within time? And why do we function so well? It is because God is the cause of our universe. I know we have a number of people who love outdoors, love to go out hiking, enjoying God's creation. And if you came across a well-ordered campsite while walking deeply into a very wooded wilderness, you would not conclude that such came into being by chance, would you? 
If you walked out into a, a wilderness and there's no path, but you hiked and you, and you just came out in the middle, and here is this well-ordered campsite, you're not going to think, wow, isn't it amazing how this just happened? That the ground just went boom and the, and the trees went boom and, and it just all fell into place. No, we don't think that way, do we? We don't consider the fact that a tent and a cook stove and a neatly piled chopped wood evolved on its own over a long period of time. We don't think that way because that is illogical. And yet, you and I live on planet Earth. And planet Earth is in the extreme reaches of a universe that we have not yet reached its limit in our study of it. And it is a perfectly prepared campsite for us to live on and in. Job was challenged to think about this as well. In Job 38, God presents himself before Job and speaks to Job personally here. It says that God spoke to him out of the whirlwind and begins to challenge Job's thinking, challenge his understanding. Now, Job was a God-fearer. God, Job was a strong believer in the one true living God. He was, and he was a worshiper of God. And he lived a life in such a way, he said, that he was blameless. He did not accuse God of wrongdoing. Job was a great man of faith, a holy man. But yes, like all men at times, he struggled because of the circumstances he found himself having to bear. And so God speaks to him, and he challenges him with questions. And in verse 4 of chapter 38, it reads, Where were you? Now here, once again, this is God, Jehovah, speaking out of the whirlwind to Job personally. And God says to Job, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Drop down to verse 31 in the same chapter. God continues to ask questions and he says, Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? You know, Pleiades is a constellation. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? That's another one. Can you lead forth a constellation in its season or guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know, do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? God is challenging Job to understand the immeasurableness of himself. 
by getting him to contemplate the universe, to contemplate the world and the heavens that he witnessed, that he could see, and that he did not understand fully. Earth, earth within this immense space is man's God-designed habitation. It is God's ordained habitation for us. As many of you already know, the earth orbits the sun, but the earth orbits rightly a yellow dwarf star in a safe zone of a spiral galaxy locked in, a, in this circular you know, orbit 93 million, mi- million miles away from the star sun. That's what's going on. And here we go, living our day, day after day, in our routines, just kind of you know, forgetting the immensity and the immeasurableness of how it's possible for you to sit right here in a comfortable building while the earth orbits and rotates just as God designed. The one who set its foundation. The one who controls the constellations. The sun's surface as we have come to understand, has a temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Interestingly, as, as we orbit, the Earth actually somewhat shifts from that orbit about one-ninth of an inch. But the amazing thing about that is this. If it departed from its orbit one-eighth of an inch instead of one-ninth of an inch from its orbit, the sun would incinerate us. And if it departed from that, that orbit one-tenth, one-tenth of an inch instead of one-ninth of an inch, we would freeze. God set the earth upon his foundation. And God set the earth at its perfect place to rotate around the right kind of star. You also know as well that you know, the earth slants you know, on its axis. And many of you would be able to recall from your school days that that slant is at a degree of 23 and a half yeah, degrees, and it's what actually you know kind of causes our seasons. You know, our seasons occur as they do, as as the Earth rotates on its axis at this angle and orbits the Sun at the same time. You know, annually, and that's how we have you know spring, summer, fall, winter, all depending at the angle we are at the spot on the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. If that was not the case, we are told, through scientific study, you know, if that's not the case, you know, we're told that the ocean vapors would be moving north and south, and they, they would produce continents of ice. The moon, 
The moon is 24,000 miles away. That's a long, long distance. Not quite as far as, you know, we are away from the sun, but still, that's a long way, 24,000 miles away from Earth. And yet, some days, it just seems so close, doesn't it? On that clear sky, on the special phases of the moon, and we stand on that clear night looking up, and we just, just are moved by its beauty. If it was only one-fifth of a mile closer, that's all it would take. One-fifth of a mile, that's not much. We're talking about 24,000 miles. And if it shifted one-fifth of a mile closer to us, the moon's gravitational pull would cause the ocean's tides to cover the continents with 35 to 50 feet of water twice a day. We know that the tides are connected to the gravitational pull of the moon. Because it's where it is, exactly where it needs to be, God set the bounds of the ocean. You will come this far, and you will go no farther. There are five fundamental, five fundamental God-ordained constants that shape the nature of our universe. Now, I don't understand all of these things. But the five fundamental constants that affect the nature of our universe is, one is the electromagnetic interaction that occurs in the universe. Another is uh, this idea of proton-electron mass ratio. That affects the nature of it. You also have this idea of a gravitational constant, not only between Earth and the moon, but throughout the universe. And then you've got you know, this idea of the weak and strong forces of atoms. So change that from what it, what it is. And what are some of the things you could have? Well, if the gravitational constant was stronger than what it is in the universe. It shapes not only our, our, our earth, it shapes the universe. And if it was stronger, all stars would be red dwarfs and they'd be too cold to support life. But we are, our star, our sun, is a yellow dwarf. If it was too weak, if it went the other way, well, then all the stars would all be Blue giants, <laughs> and they would be burning too hot as well. You kind of look at some of those smaller fundamentals, like the idea of the nuclear particles and how they are bound together. So you've got these forces, strong forces, binding nuclear particles together. If it was 1% stronger, just 1% stronger than what it is, all carbon would be burned into oxygen. And carbon-based life would be impossible. Carbon-based life would be impossible. If the thin crust of the earth was just 10 feet thicker, now that's deep, but not hugely deep. But if the earth's crust was just 10 feet thicker, there'd be no oxygen. If the oceans were deeper, and we've got some deep oceans, sections that you know, we have yet to explore, 
its depths. You know, we, we live in an amazing universe, and we live on an amazing planet. But if the oceans were deeper than what they are, carbon dioxide and oxygen would be absorbed. And there could be no vegetable life that would exist. God, God established the boundaries of our habitation. And we realize that in spite of the fact, you know, you know, the oceans are just the right size and their tides, you know, go just, you know, at the right times and the right ways. And they're just deep enough. Besides all of that, we also realize at the same time, water is kind of important. <laughs> it is essential to our planet's existence. Both salt water as well as fresh water. Both are vital to life on earth. If you recall, you know, the uh, composition of water and the ideal structure of HO2, and it's a tetrahedral structure, that what that does, it allows it at the right temperature to form a structure that makes it solid state, as we know as ice, That's the solid state of water. So it allows the solid state of water to be less dense than its liquid state. Think about that. The solid state of water is less dense than the liquid state because of the nature of the structure of water. If if that was not the case, what would happen? You know, things that are of greater density than water, what do they do? You know, you, you, you throw a pebble, skip it on the surface of the water, but once it's done skipping, what does it do? It's less dense than the water. It sinks to the bottom. And if ice sunk to the bottom, what do it do? Then that ice would fill the oceans and lakes from the bottom upward, and they would remain frozen. For an entire year. That's no accident. That is no accident. God established the habitation of man. So that man could be sustained. And sustain his life on planet earth. The thermal conductivity and the preponderance of of water actually is what provides this kind of temperature stabilizer on the planet. And so, yes, so ice doesn't sink to the bottom. It floats on the top. And at the same time, there's life underneath, thriving in the oceans and the lakes. Because water also has this conductivity in a thermal way. And so it's able to, to sustain its temperature. While at the same time, its coolant properties, because of evaporation, makes it ideal for you and me to keep our bodies cool by perspiration. God did this. God did all of this. And so in conclusion, I want us to read, going back to Job 38 again, but reading a couple other sections here, 
as God challenged the thinking and the reasoning of Job, and at the same time, by preserving this declaration from God, challenges us still today. As we have come to understand and maybe you know, appreciate some of the workings of, of our universe, more so than Job did, but yet at the same time, we understand it is God's hand at work. So going back to the 38th chapter, picking up at verse 8, he says, Who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, who went out from the womb? When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far, thus far, you should come, but no farther. And here shall your proud way stop. Drop down to verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. We are able to live on planet Earth. Why? Why are we able to live on this planet in the immense universe that exists? Why is that the case? It is because God established the boundaries of our habitation. God created this universe and he created this earth and created and established the designed earth as it is to put us here to create image bearers of himself so that we might be able to bring glory and honor and our purpose of serving him this delicate balance very delicate balance from a cosmological physical or biological conditions for intelligent life to exist We live in a universe and on a planet that requires perfect planning, perfect timing for everything to come together so life could live and maintain itself. And that deserves a reasonable explanation. And the most reasonable explanation is that there is a maker. The greatest clock maker. That's a reasonable explanation. Because of the design of the universe. Because of the design of the balance of earth around the sun. Providing the perfect conditions that not only man can live. But all other life forms that God made can also live. And understanding better how the universe works. Points us. It really does when we have open hearts and open minds. Understanding better how it works. It points to the truth that there is a designer and there is a maker who makes it all possible. And it is that same creator creator that has ordered a plan of salvation as well. The one who created us is the one 
who's provided the perfect means of saving us from ourselves. Yes, our Creator made us free moral beings, not for the purpose to transgress, but to serve Him out of love. But He knew in His omniscience that we would turn away. And that same designer that created this amazing world that we live and are part of has loved us so much, he provided the only means of atonement possible, and that's Jesus Christ. And it's only through the name of Jesus you can be saved. Are you? Are you saved? Have you been cleansed by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ? If not, we want to encourage you tonight. If you believe Jesus to be the Christ, and you believe Him to be the Son of God, that He was the Word, and is the Word, who was in the beginning with God and is God. If you believe that with all your heart, but you've not submitted to Him, we invite you and we encourage you, please, make that decision tonight. Submit your will to the will of the Creator and he will wash you clean by the power of his grace and mercy. But you have to have enough faith to believe the designer, to believe the maker, to believe the Savior. Will you confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, repent of your sins, and be baptized into Christ? If you'll do that, you can be assured of your forgiveness. Whatever your spiritual need may be, please come now or we stand and sing the song that's been selected.